If I were to ask you to name the four Gospels that are in Scripture, you would say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those, those four books are the very foundation of the New Testament. They come at the beginning of the New Testament, and it's all about the life of Jesus, His teachings, and also especially His death and, and resurrection. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about the Gospel of Isaiah, which may seem very much out of place to you, but that's the focus of our message, and our text is Isaiah 53. Now, we know that Isaiah, the author of the book that bears his name, lived some 700 years before Christ was even born. So if the short definition of the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, how does this title apply? How does this thinking, how do we make sense of a title like the gospel of Isaiah. Some of you would say, okay, okay, I get it. Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus' crucifixion, so that's point. That's the point. And it's true that Jesus' crucifixion, which is dramatically prophesied in Isaiah 53, is a crucial part of the big picture. But the message today is not so much about the book of Isaiah or even Isaiah 53, but rather it's about the gospel And the gospel is seen in all of Scripture. The truth of the gospel that we're going to contemplate this morning just happens to be in the book of Isaiah. Now, if we find a clear presentation of the gospel in the book of Isaiah, then clearly we need a larger definition than the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, we we see Jesus in the book of Isaiah because we're looking back from a new testament perspective we put on a different set of glasses and we see things more clearly now it's almost like the old testament was in 3d but you didn't have the glasses and sometimes you just can't make sense of what's going on and the new testament gives us glasses and now the old testament makes a lot more sense once we know god through jesus we begin to understand that all of the old testament was pointing toward him and then it's quite easy to see Jesus there and to understand begin to see the fullness of the whole truth of God unfortunately many people don't think of it that way they understand the Old Testament as revealing a God of wrath and the New Testament as revealing a God of love it's kind of like Jesus came along said God don't don't be quite that way and he says okay I, 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 I won't I'll be a God of love Now, so is God a God of wrath or is he a God of love? He's both, yes. The answer is yes. He's both. And while there's there's no doubt that that in Jesus we see his love far more clearly than we did before, God has always been a God of love. And he continues to this day to exercise his wrath, not only against sin, but against sinners. So this morning... In the book of Isaiah, we're going to see both God's wrath and his love for his people. And we're going to be almost exclusively in the book of Isaiah because it it clearly reveals a difficult truth that most people have failed to grasp. And many in the world are utterly unwilling to accept because of, of their wrong impression of who God is. And here's this truth that we're going to be thinking about this morning. Through Jesus... It's not so much that God came 
to save us from ourselves or even to save us from Satan. And look, that was a big, for a long time, that was a big theory or understanding. Augustine, probably the greatest theologian in church history uh, after the New Testament writers, believed that Jesus died to redeem us from Satan. It's the devil ransom theory, they called it. So that God had to buy us back from Satan. We belong to Satan because of our sin, and then Jesus died so he could... But that's not what redemption means at all. It's not that God had to save us from Satan, but God had to save us from himself. That's why Jesus came and died in our place. Let that sink in for just a moment. God had to save us from himself. If that's true, and the whole Bible says that it is over and over, then it has to change everything about the way we think about God, about the way we think about ourselves, and how we live our lives. And if it doesn't make sense now, hopefully it will by the end of this morning. Now, there's a lot of application that naturally flows from this truth, and we're going to going to list several applications in the end, but the application is meaningless without absorbing this truth. I don't know if you saw the movie Contagion. Uh, Matt Damon, at the very early portion, his wife, who's very famous, I can't remember her name. Uh, who was it? Gwyn- Gwyneth Paltrow. Gets sick and dies right up front, so you know it's going to be one of those kind of movies. And, and so, you know, he's in the hospital and he's just in a daze. And he says, I, 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 you know, he says, I, 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 tell me what's going on. And the doctor says, oh, we did everything we could. Uh, we don't know what this is, but we lost her. And he says, oh, okay, okay, I want to talk to my wife. And, Sir, I want to talk to my wife. Sir, your wife is dead. That changes everything. He was thinking one way, but... The cold, hard reality changes everything. So, the, so does the news that we're going to receive this morning, though it's far better news than Matt Damon received in the movie. Since this is a message about the gospel, let, let's consider the definition that we gave last year when we spent several months talking about the gospel. <clears throat> the just and gracious God of the universe, in response to hopelessly sinful people, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can't, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross, and to show his power over sin and the resurrection, so that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever. So is this truth really seen in Isaiah? Yes, really. Looking back, it's easy to see Jesus. In fact, we would have probably seen ourselves even if so many New Testament writers didn't reference it. Isaiah is the most referenced prophet in the New Testament and along with Deuteronomy and Psalms, it's one of the three most often quoted books in the New Testament. In fact, we, we saw it this morning if you were paying attention. During the prayer, t- I mean during the, uh, the, the offering, those verses coming from Acts chapter 8 were Quoting back to Isaiah 53, the Ethiopian eunuch found Jesus by reading Isaiah 53 and having it explained to him by one who already knew Jesus. Um, it's, it's likely that some of your favorite verses in the Bible are from the book of, 
of Isaiah. In fact, if I were to say, they, those who wait upon the Lord, you would say, shall what? Renew their strength. Shall mount up with wings as he. And, and over and over in the book of Isaiah, there are wonderful thoughts. But how can the same book contain thoughts from God like, I despise your religious ceremonies. I will send you into captivity. I will punish you. I hate your sin. My soul hates these offerings that you give to me. And, and at the same time say, though, though a mother may forget her nursing child, I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Well, the gospel answers that question. It's not that God has a dual nature. He's just so much bigger than we're able to comprehend. And when we think about the two sides of God's nature, of wrath and love, we tend to think in human terms. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit, but he's not that. The way that God can be both completely justified in his wrath toward sin and toward sinners, and at the same time forgive our sins and treat us with the greatest tenderness, is because of the central truth of the gospel found in Isaiah 53, which we're going to read as our text today. We're not staying in Isaiah 53. We'll come back to it just briefly. We tend to be more familiar with the early verses in Isaiah, so I've highlighted portions that will be on the screen of, of, of the latter verses, latter chapter uh, verses of, of, of Isaiah 53 that really speak to how God can be both wrathful towards sin and yet tender and loving toward us because of Jesus' sacrifice. So Isaiah 53, if you would please stand as we read God's word, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He is talking about Jesus almost all the way through. A time or two, it refers to God the Father, but most of this time is talking about Jesus. Jesus grew up before the Father like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet 
it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions, transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's our Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, it is truth that is, it's stunning and it's difficult for us to absorb, and yet absorb it we must. And as we do, we find the beauty and the sweetness and the mercy and the grace of your plan. Enabling us to interact with you. And Father, that's gotta make a what that's gotta make a difference in the way that we live. And as we consider your word in Isaiah, we recognize that this plan was made before the world ever began. And we thank you for calling us to be a part of your family. Speak to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, next Sunday we're going to return to our series on the 29th chapter. Sean mentioned a little earlier that we went through the book of Acts last year. This year we're going through a series called the 29th chapter, and I'm using the slides. This, this message could certainly fit in the context of the ongoing story that God is writing through Grace Community Church Not the same kind of specific story that he wrote in Scripture, but it's every bit as much his story in our church. Scripture is our guide. And this story is the foundation for everything we're doing. We were sort of in the middle of a a series when, when I guess it was precursor for vertigo. I have really struggled with vertigo this last month or so and um, am, am continuing to do so. So if... All of a sudden, I fall over into the front. You know, some of you guys up front, if you would catch me, if I would appreciate it. Um, but sort of got sidetracked, but we're talking about the purpose of our church. We're talk, we want to talk about purpose, mission, and vision eventually. And I'm going to try to define those words next week. It'll be a little bit of a different kind of a, a message. And that's where we were heading before we got sidetracked and then Advent season. So... <clears throat> This, though, this gospel message is, is everything we're talking about in our, our mission to the world that Sean was sharing this morning. And by the way, this missions conference that's coming up, you're late hearing about it, but it's not because we're, we're late planning it. It's that God just put this together. Um, Roy Lytle is going to be here from Suriname, and then we got a, a, an email from Joe uh, Hunziker in Italy saying, you know what, I'm going to be here at that particular time. And so we said, look... Either this is serendipitous or providential, and we know it's providential. 
And so we said, let's, let's do it. Let's plan a missions conference. And, and Tripp and Heather are in, te- they're in the country for just a very short time. We're going to see if it's at all possible for them to be here next week and you to get to share with them. So it's an awesome opportunity to, to get to know our missionaries better. But then, as Sean said, not just to focus on the mission that's going on out there, but the mission that's going on right here, just outside these walls and in our neighborhoods and in our places of work. So anyway, all of that to say that this message that we're thinking about today is sort of a foundation for everything where we're, we're hitting. One of the purposes that I, I have in mind for preaching this message is to provide a hermeneutic for studying the book of Isaiah. Hermeneutic is just a, a fancy way of, of, of talking about interpreting Scripture. It's a fancy word for interpreting Scripture. It's a guide that keeps us in the road and keeps us out of the ditches. The three things that we're going to see in the book of Isaiah this morning would work almost anywhere in Scripture. And and so that's sort of the idea. Whenever you're looking especially at Old Testament verses, you're going to find these three things over and over in Scripture. While we could use a lot of different portions of the book to show the gospel that is embedded in the book of Isaiah, we're going to use three chapters for examples, and, and not going to read all of those chapters, but... Those are the places we'll point to. The first thing that we're going to see in Isaiah, especially in the first chapter, is that man is is incapable of living the way that God requires for us to live. I mean, my goodness, we try. We, We try, don't we? We try to do the right thing. And in fact, when you talk to somebody who is trying to relate to God outside of the gospel, and you ask them a question like, you know, what is your hope of heaven? Well, well I'm just, I'm doing the best I can. I'm, I'm, I'm not a bad person. Look, I'm, I, and almost always they say, I hadn't killed anybody. Like that's the standard, you know. Most of us get in if that's the case. Um, but we try, we want to live in a right manner. But remember, one of the primary purposes of the law, of the Old Testament law, is to remind us that we are incapable of meeting God's expectations because His standard is absolute perfection. Holiness. (coughs) Look at the way God speaks in the very beginning of Isaiah's prophecy in the first chapter. This is chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly Strange. Do you think about just about any hero of the Old Testament and you'll remember that they're not really heroes. There are people that point us to Jesus, but think about the man after God's own heart. Who was it? David. Did he ever mess up? A time or two. Yeah. See, David wouldn't have gotten in on that standard that we were talking about a while ago. He had a man killed so he could sleep with his wife without... See, he already got her pregnant. She was... Going to give birth, and so he, he tried everything he could to cover his basis, and he couldn't, so he killed her, brought him in. Maybe nobody will know. Six-month miracle, you know? 
that's a man after God's own heart. Surely there's some standard other than just doing right. We're incapable, utterly incapable. The Lord goes on to say in, in Isaiah 1 that those, that those who should have obeyed the law that He had graciously given them as a part of, of His covenant with them, they were sick from head to toe and they didn't even know it. And, and that's the way people are today, right? We, we get that way too. But when, when somebody says, well, I'm just trying to do the best I can. Look, before Jesus, we're sick from head to toe. And we're walking around like everything's all right. I mean, if, if that vertigo hit me in the next few minutes, I might be saying, I'm all right, I'm all right, but you'll know I'm not. All right? I'm trying to kid myself. I'm not fooling most of you, and I'm certainly not fooling God. These people came to the temple, and they performed all of the religious, religious ceremonies as everything were just hunky-dory with the Lord. But they were sick with sin. And their attempts to please the Lord made him sick. He despised their sacrifices and told them that they had better come around or he would judge them. Verses 19 and 20. If you were willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You'll notice in the verse before that, the previous verse, verse 18. That the Lord had invited his people to come to the table and deal with him. The problem was and the problem is we are incapable of dealing with God. If our sins which are red like crimson are to be forgiven. Then there's going to have to be another way that we're going to interact with God. Then our promise is to do good and to be better. We're sinners, that's our second point. Man is incapable of dealing with God's wrath. He's, un he's unqualified. Only God can deal with God. Do you get this point? Only God can deal with God. That's what we were reading about in Isaiah 53. My servant is going to bear the sins of many and I will look and I'll be satisfied. If Jesus weren't God, if he were not God, he would have been created. If Jesus were not every bit, you, you know, God is not going to make a being and then say, okay, I'm going to raise you to the status of myself. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, or at least at some level. Mormons believe that. But if Jesus were not God, he would have been created, and created beings are incapable or unqualified to deal with God and his wrath. They can't be a sacrifice for anybody because they have to make atonement for their own sins, those who are created. We're sinners. But Jesus, <coughs> being God, was eligible. And we said part of this in the definition of the gospel. He lived a life that we could not live, and this is also true. He died a death that we couldn't die. Let's recall just a bit of the language in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. That is very strong language, isn't it? If God had not crushed Jesus, his son, then the debt that we owed him would stand between us still. And it would for all eternity. Our sins, the problem between us and God would be unresolved. We would have tried like Isaiah's people tried to do better, to keep the law, and we would have found that we were utterly incapable. Incapable. Jesus willingly accepted God's judgment as a lamb led to the slaughter because he he knew it was God's will and because he knew it had to be done if God was going to be satisfied with us. This had to be done. We have no hope of negotiating any kind of peace with the holy God. Reading through the biography of Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've, I've recommended that book and several of you have gotten it and read it and I'm still on it. One of the reasons is, I'm not kidding, I, I don't want it to end. I mean, I, I know it's, it's heading toward what we would think as a horrible ending when Dietrich Bonhoeffer is hung just days before Hitler kills himself. One of his last orders is to make sure this man dies. But Bonhoeffer, along with other conspirators in in the German army and government, were wanting to, they were making overtures to to England saying, look, we just want to know that if we take Hitler out, if we assassinate him, that you are not going to treat us horribly. And Churchill said, I got nothing to say to you. You've let this go on far too long. You have no power to negotiate whatsoever. Look, we're, we're in far less of a better place than Bonhoeffer and his guys were in Germany. We have no ability to negotiate with God alone. But Jesus' sacrifice means that he went to the table and negotiated for us. And now... We are accounted righteous or perfect. It makes no sense, does it? But we have achieved that status, not because of anything that we have done, but because of Jesus. In his very last interview in 1963, C.S. Lewis said that at his conversion, he felt as though God were saying, put down your gun and we'll talk. Now, I can't agree with all of what Lewis was saying. If you just take that verse in and of itself, it almost sounds like there was a negotiation going on there. But it's kind of like Isaiah 1.18. Come, let us reason together. Well, there's ultimately no reasoning. There's ultimately no deal that we can break with God unless Jesus is in the mix. But it's true, and, 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 and what Lewis was ultimately saying was we cannot deal with God on our own, whether it be a desperate attempt to placate his wrath or as Lewis was in frustration, angrily denying, trying to deny God's existence and you just give up. That's where Lewis came to. If God's anger is going to be assuaged, if it's going to be tempered, he's going to have to deal with himself. Now, Don't picture 
a mother saying to her child, honey, your father's angry, just stay out of the way and I'll try to calm him down. That's not, that's not what's going on here. Picture rather, you're standing before the judge of the universe and everything you've been accused of is absolutely correct. And all the evidence is there. And the judge of the universe says, you are guilty as charged. And the penalty for your crimes, for your sins, is death. Eternal death. A state of always dying. Eternal punishment. And it begins immediately. The law, my law, demands it. My perfect righteousness, my holiness requires it. But because I love you, and because I don't want to punish you, my son, I am going to send my son to die in your place. And you must repent of your sin. You must acknowledge before me that you're guilty of these crimes and agree with me about them, about this sin, and believe that he is dying in your place. Why do we talk about this so much at Grace Community Church? Two reasons. First, it's our only hope of heaven. And while God determines who will hear and who will absorb and who will understand it, they won't hear if we don't say it. And it's a central message of all of Scripture. But second, the truth of the gospel is the structure by which we live as believers. See, it's not that the gospel is is pulled out for, for salvation and then we put it on the shelf unless we're witnessing and then we pull it out again and say, okay, okay, yeah, let me, let's dust it off a little bit and, and go tell people this, this good news. This is the structure by which we are called and enabled to live as believer. If I'm saved by good works, then there is only a certain amount that God or I can expect from me. I can only go so far if it's a good works kind of a thing. But if I am saved by grace, then there is nothing that He cannot expect from me. Because it's His doings that saves me and it's His doings that lives through me. It's got to be all Jesus for salvation. And it's got to be all Jesus for spiritual growth and godly living. Yielding to His work in me. And that's the difficulty. Because I don't want to leave anything to chance. I don't want to leave anything up. Well, it's God, isn't it? I don't want to leave things up to God, so I need to take control of my life. But when we yield, oh my, what joy there is in the Lord. Because God is so satisfied with Jesus... And Jesus is in us. He is satisfied with Jesus in us. He delights in blessing us with unspeakable joy and with gifts and with great pleasure. Look, it's not that God, like I say, is dual nature. It's not that he's this way one day, this way the next. His nature is perfectly consistent. All other gods have to be appeased by actions that we do and by sacrifices that we make for ourselves. And he says, no, 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 no. 
It's all a gift. I love you. And not only do we recognize the beauty of salvation in Jesus, but he delights in blessing us with unspeakable joy and with gifts and with great pleasure. That's the focus of this last point. And, and we're going to see, we see God's delight in us throughout Scripture and, and especially throughout the book of Isaiah. But chapter 55 gives us that beautiful description of God's tender care for us in the gospel. I hope you'll read the, the entire chapter, Isaiah 55, later today. But, but I want to just read the first three verses to give you a taste of his love. Then we're going to make gospel application from the truth that we've considered today. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Is he holding anything back from us? I mean, early on, we see that his wrath is directed at at not only sin, but at sinners. It, It has to be. It has to follow. You know, we, we like to make these distinctions. I, you know, I love you. I don't love your sin. God loves the sin, but he, sinner, but he doesn't love your sin. Apart from Jesus, he doesn't love the sinner. His wrath is directed. He loves the world. Don't misunderstand me. His wrath overrides his love those who are outside of Jesus Christ, which is why it is so desperately important. But when he offers Jesus to us, he says, come, if you thirst, come to the waters, you will find refreshment. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Here and here in, in, in the Old and New Testament has the implication that we hear and we apply. Not only that we hear, but that we, that we receive it. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So what does that mean to me Today? Today? Four things we're going to talk about. And, and, and look, you might say, how does this come from the text? This is, this is gospel, truth, and application. At, at the home groups, we're going to be talking about this this week, and you're going to see how the entire Scripture is gospel and how these applications are in play for us. And, and I would encourage you, if you will, just write these down and, and meditate on these applications Later, I think you're going to find treasure for your soul as you contemplate the gospel at this level. First, it was impossible to please God apart from Jesus before we were saved. And it still is. I, I, I think that we get confused about our relationship with God. We think, okay, saved by grace? Absolutely. Now it's up to me. I have to prove my worth for bearing this name. And there's a bit of truth in that comment, that I have to prove myself worthy. There's a bit of truth, but there's a whole lot of error. And the error takes us away from the gospel. It creates a lot of problems for us. We are saved 
to do good works. And furthermore, good works are an indication of our relationship with God. But the only reason we do good works now is because Jesus is in us. And the Holy Spirit is living Jesus' life through us. And when he is, God is pleased and active in our lives. A second application that we're going to make is this. It's never a bad thing to be in a place where you're called to be humble. Because of the fall, this, this world is, is full of trouble. And God's purpose for us, when he saves us, if he's pleased with Jesus in us, his desire is for us to be more and more like Jesus And if that's going to be the case, we're going to have to be humble. You remember the humility that Jesus exhibited just coming to us? And then he he humbled himself to the Lord's. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Since humility is generally not our strong point, God graciously supplies trials that help us find humility. Acts 14.22 informs us, in fact, that we will enter the kingdom of God. It's God's design, it's His will, that we enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Look, trials of all kind are humbling. As much as we want to appear humble, most of us seek humility on our own terms. That's not really... Humility, is it? Well, it may be, but the test comes when humility, we're called to be humble in a way that we just don't want to be. Humility, though, brings us close to God. And what does pride do as far as God's interaction with us? Turns him away. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And as difficult as it is to be in a hospital or to be laid off from work or to forget your lines when you're given a report or, 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 for, or to be misunderstood or, or mocked by people that you respect and especially people that you love, it's difficult. But even in those circumstances, it is never a bad thing to be in a place where you're called to be humble. God is sovereign, and he's given you this trial in your life for a reason. Let him do his work to completion. See, here's where we we take so much and then we say, all right, well, that's just enough. No more of that. I'm going to take control here. No. Just stop. Be humble. God has put this into your life. You will be exalted according to James 4. And when you are (laughs) exalted, that doesn't mean, yeah, you used to laugh at me, I'm on top. No. When God exalts you, you will be glorifying Him. That's all. And your heart will be for the people that sought to cause you humiliation, but humiliation is a choice that we make.
difference between humility, humiliation. Would you close your eyes for just a moment before we apply these last two? I just want to stop right here. What is God using in your life to help you to be humble? Maybe a condition, it may be a person. It may be the way that you were natured. Would you just accept that from God's hand? Oh, I am absolutely horrible at doing this. So I say this from a position of humility. Would you just say, okay, God, I receive this from your hand. Would you, in fact, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, embrace this? Just thank the Lord that he loves you enough and that he honors you enough to give you this trial. Not that we rejoice in sin or the results of sin, but we rejoice in being made more like Jesus. I'll just give you just a moment. Would you just thank God for what he's doing in your life? Amen. It's probably, you're going to need some more time with that one, I think. Here's a gospel application that may confuse or surprise you. To be disappointed with yourself is to have believed in yourself. Someone was recently telling me about a friend's struggle and said, I can't believe she would do that. I, I just, I'm shocked. I'm stunned that she would do that. And I, I think it was the Lord that led me to respond. I'm stunned that you're stunned. Every one of us is capable of, the, capable of the most heinous sins. But we forget that after we come to Jesus, don't we? Because we should be on a different tra trajectory, and we are. Our lives are not different. You know, where they say, I'm not where I should be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. All that's true. But we still... I'm going to talk about this a lot at home groups this week. We still struggle with sin. Adam still lives in us. And it's not a matter of him showing us the way and now it's up to us. Because when we start saying, okay, I got this, I got this, I got this, you know what happens, we fall. To be disappointed in yourself indicates that you were thinking more highly of yourself than you should have thought. And that kind of thinking moves you further and further away from the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. We should never accept sin in our lives as normal, as the way that it should be. Jesus lives in us, for goodness sake. But to be really frustrated with failures is to move toward legalism. And we can't afford to do that.
Have you ever been surprised at the seeds of joy that are embedded in true repentance? Right after you've committed the worst thing you can imagine in your mind. And you've said that, I can't believe I did that. But you said, you just stretched out on the floor with your face in the carpet and your hands out and said, God, please, even as you repent, you start sensing this joy. And God's pleasure toward you because he's satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. And that is right on cue for the last point. Joy is the only motivation that will yield a holy life. God is glorified and takes pleasure in our delight of Him and in our pleasure of His good gifts to us. John Piper often says, God is most glorified when I am most satisfied with Him. Amen. Now let me offer a caveat to this last point about joy and delight and pleasure. It is very easy for us to pervert pleasure. But, but unspeakable joy and delightful pleasure are a part of God's plan and His will for His children. When our hearts are right and we are swimming in delight and pleasure, God is so pleased. Why would He give us the senses that we have? Why would He give us this love for beauty, this aesthetic appreciation for the creation if he did not want us to be pleased. And when we fully embrace the gospel, we begin to get just a small taste of how life was designed to be and how it was before the fall. So quit feeling guilty about all the good things that come to you in life. Never lust after that which you don't have. But accept what you do have as delightful blessings from the hand of the Lord and find joy in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you may find yourself far less attached to the tangible things that seem to bring happiness. Remember last week, Sean talking about joy and happiness? Look, a lot of you not here last week, get that message, listen to it. It's a great beginning of the year message. But when we find joy in Christ, even if He just pours out blessings on us, then we may find ourselves less attached to those material blessings and more attached to Jesus. That's the gospel of Isaiah. Now let me rephrase that. That's the gospel, but it's found in Isaiah, and it's found everywhere else in this word. Let's pray.